when somebody does research on a molecule or on a gene uh, or on some particular technology, right? So my husband is a breast cancer surgeon. When he sits around a dinner table with friends and he talks about some development on this particular gene and what its effect is on um, you know, breast cancer response to treatment by genotype, everybody at the table listens and they're interested and they ask reasonably intelligent questions. At the same table, uh, if someone like me or any other person working in nutritional science, nutritional epidemiology talks about something, everyone immediately has an opinion, everyone is an expert, everyone has their pet hypothesis of what works and what doesn't work because we are all exposed to, you know, to, to eating. We all eat. We're not all geneticists or uh, cancer specialists, but we are all specialists in eating. So what happens is people do get very passionate about something that has worked for them, but what they are not acknowledging within that is other things that work for other people. That's Nito Furui, Professor of Population Health and Nutrition at the University of Cambridge. We'll hear more from her in a little while, but as you heard, she cares a lot about food. I do too, and if our listener stats are to be believed, so do you. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor here at the BMJ. And in this podcast, I'm talking to a few of the authors of a new series that we'll be publishing next week, which tries to help you have those dinner conversations with some insight into the current state of nutritional science, where the controversies lie, where there's broad agreement, and where we've come from in our understanding of where it's going. It's not all going to be fat versus sugar. It's going to be much more nuanced than that. The open access fees for those articles have been paid for by Swissery. It's a wholesaler provider of reinsurance, insurance and other insurance-based forms of risk transfer. They've not had any input into the editorial process, which has gone through the same peer review as any of our other analysis articles. Swissery are also co-hosting a conference where we'll be bringing together a lot of these researchers and that's going to be live streamed next week. You'll be able to access that for free from bmj.com. Now, in this particular episode of the podcast, I've spoken to a few of the researchers to have a bit of a look at how we go about understanding nutrition. How can it be that advice has changed so much over time? And where we should be focusing our research efforts in the future? But a useful place to start is a look back at where we've come from. And to answer that, I talked to Dariush Mozaferian, a cardiologist and dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy at Tufts University. You know, I think lots of people have a sense that the food system is broken, but really the, the breadth and depth of the problem and, and of the opportunity is staggering. You know, food is now the leading cause of poor health in the world, you know, due to hunger, due to chronic diseases like obesity and diabetes and cancer and cardiovascular diseases. And it's one of the major issues for environmental impact, for rising healthcare costs. Um, this is crushing business costs because of, you know, uh, poor, uh, poor competitiveness. Um, and so if you look at all these issues, if you look at health, healthcare costs, business, the environment, and also disparities, the, you know, the incredible gaps between those who have and those who, who do not, um, you know, food is, is a major challenge. Uh, and so to me, this is one of the greatest issues facing the world today. And what's exciting is compared to many other world crises, uh, we have many world crises, uh, this is one that we can solve and we can solve in a pretty short amount of time if we use the evidence and knowledge we have and we bring together the right stakeholders to, uh, you know, create strategic and sensible solutions. Mm, absolutely. Um, you've written this article, which is an overview um, of our kind of history of of looking at nutrition, studying it. And it's really quite apparent, um, given the, the sort of timeline we've put together, about our change from, from lack to too much over that time and our, our simultaneously a change from, you know, looking at the minutiae of it, single micronutrients, vitamins, um, up to, you know, the full 
uh, trying to step back and look at health systems and behavior and, and everything else in there. Um, so I suppose what I'm asking you is, uh, could you sort of take us a little bit through that and, and about that evolution of, of the way we're looking at health? Well, first, you know, of course, food and nutrition has been studied for millennia, but I would say that modern nutrition science, the way we think of nutrition, well, first, you know, of course, food and nutrition has been studied for millennia, but I would say that modern nutrition science, the way we think of nutrition now, has, is really less than 100 years old. And that, that simple fact uh, that much of what we know now and what guides our, our policies and our industry and our behaviors is, is based on 100 years of history of science really explains a lot. And so looking back helps us understand where we are and, and where we need to go. And, you know, if we want to tell the story of the of the history of nutrition, I would say there's really been, you know, three periods. The first period in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s was this, you know, really um, golden age of vitamin discovery where all the major vitamins were discovered and isolated and synthesized and were shown to prevent uh, you know, single nutrient deficiency diseases. And the classic example is scurvy. You know, 1932 was the year that vitamin C was for the first time ever isolated and synthesized and was actually proven to cure scurvy. And then many other diseases that were, you know, uh, like like rickets from lack of vitamin D or other diseases were identified in that time. And so that was this golden age where people thought, wow, we can solve nutritional problems by breaking down food into its components, picking the single most important component and giving it back to people in a pill or putting it in foods like fortifying foods with, with iron or with, with iodine. And that led to huge benefits because, of course, these single nutrient diseases were uh, you know, rampant throughout much of the world and, and their prevalence w- was reduced substantially. And then the next big problem was hunger, not enough calories. And so there was the green revolution, the the science to just increase the production and transport and stability of staple crops like wheat and rice and corn. And that also had some great successes. You know, hunger, pure hunger <clears throat> was, was reduced uh, dramatically. So these twin forces of science, the, the science on single uh, vitamins and their role in health and the science on just producing calories at scale really led to a lot of our policies in the 60s and 70s, which, which was to get supplements and, and food fortified and just to get calories out into the world. And it really wasn't until around 1980 that the science and the policy started really thinking about nutrition and chronic diseases like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, cancer. You know, 1980, that's modern history. That's really not that long ago. And what we've learned in these few decades is the really rapid uh, uh, advances in science have shown us that this simple approach to just focusing on calories and vitamins doesn't work for chronic diseases. And so, you know, we made the mistake of trying to simplify chronic diseases the same way by just focusing on a single reductionist nutrient. Let's, let's talk about total fat. Let's talk about saturated fat. Let's talk about dietary cholesterol. That, those were the areas of focus in the 1980s and 1990s because that, that had been so successful for diseases like scurvy and rickets. But cancer and cardiovascular disease and obesity and diabetes are really complicated. And so what we've learned in just the last couple decades is the complexity of these modern diseases is very different from what we needed to study and what we needed to do for these simple single nutrient diseases. And so now we know we have to study incredible complexity and we have to look at foods and, and what kind of foods people eat, not, not single nutrients. We need to look at really interesting, complex uh, pathways in the body related to the microbiome, related to the brain, related to liver function. We need to understand how food is processed, how fermentation makes a difference, how probiotics make a difference. Uh, and we have to really think about powerful environmental influences like social status and and how food is accessible and how much it costs. And so this complexity, I think, is where we are now. And so we're transitioning from this simplified reductionist view of nutrition where it's all about single nutrients like total fat or saturated fat to real complexity where yogurt is not cheese, is not butter, is not milk. 
right? These are all different foods. And fermented milk is not milk. And hard cheese may not be soft cheese. And so I think this, this complexity is the future. And, and um, this is also true for policy. Uh, much of our policy for nutrition and chronic diseases focused on just education and knowledge. If we tell the public, they'll make the right choice. And I think we've learned that decision-making for food is very complex, and we need to have systems approaches where we address all the different pieces of the system that get food from, you know, the farm into, into, onto your table. We have to address all those systems one by one in a, you know, evidence-informed strategic way. You know, I, I think what you've talked about there makes it really apparent as well that, you know, we almost thought of food as being fuel. And now we're understanding that um, there's so much more that goes on in there. It's cultural. It's emotional. It's there's the the complexity and its sort of central role in our lives um, makes it quite different from any other sort of medical uh, study intervention almost. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, we have to move beyond food as fuel, not just because of all these cultural and social uh, and uh, economic issues, but also because food, even biologically, is so much more than than fuel. You know, the individual specific types of fats in a food make up our cell membranes, bind to receptors and change our gene function, uh, lead, give rise to incredibly powerful metabolites that change our brains, our livers, our fat cells, and their function. Uh, alter our microbiome and how our gut bacteria speak to us and influence us. And so, you know, the the food is so much more than just about calories and fuel or just about getting enough of the right nutrients. It's really about nurturing our bodies uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the medicalization of health, um, you know, has also in some ways led to the kind of reductionist medicalization of food and, and the complexity is incredibly um, uh, interesting and beautiful and shows that, you know, food is really about um, so much of what makes us human is how we grow and, and eat and share food. Because we've only been studying and kind of understanding food and the importance of nutrition really recently, um, in a way we let um, the kind of things we eat and the way we produce food and the industry around it kind of grow up without a an amount of scrutiny that we might have given um, to another aspect of life. And I wonder uh, how much of a problem do you think that is? And, and do you think, uh, as we understand more about food uh, and its importance, that we need to re-examine um, all those structures that, that go around it? You know, one of the most striking things that that I find in talking to people is, you know, the sort of the short-term memory you have for how much uh, how, how how much things have changed. So, you know, the way the food system is now is so different than it was even 20 years ago, and radically different than it was 40 years ago. And those changes are driven and have been driven by advances in science. And so, I think it's not that the food system hasn't been driven by science or it hasn't been influenced by science. It has, but the science has been early and young and and improving and evolving. And so I'm actually very optimistic because right now there's a food revolution going on and um, food is not going to be produced, sold, um, consumed in the same way 20 years from now uh, as, as it is now. And so to me, what's important is that, you know, we make sure that that continuing rapid advance is based on the best possible available evidence that we we say, here's what we know, you know, reasonably well, let's, let's pursue this. And that we say, well, here's some stuff that we don't know that well, so maybe let's not make too many policy or industry decisions about this. And here are some areas we really need to understand and we need to, you know, substantially increase investment in research to understand. So, so I think that the food system has been developed um, based on the science, but um, the science has been changing so quickly and the food system has been changing so quickly with it. It's all happening under our noses. Sometimes we don't r realize how, how quickly it's changing. Uh, you kind of extrapolated a little bit into the, the future in this interview and uh, in your paper. I wonder um, where do you think we're going You know, next in the very immediate future and, and then maybe a little bit further down the line? Well, I think the immediate future of nutrition science is going to be about, you know, a few areas. One, it's going to be about understanding foods rather than single nutrients. And so, you know, when you consume yogurt, it's not just a carrier of calcium or fat 
or vitamin D or saturated fat, it also has probiotics and individual fatty acids and, you know, a, a range of other compounds and how all those work together is more important than any one of those nutrients. And so I think, you know, the understanding foods is clearly, you know, the short-term immediate future of nutrition science. Also understanding all of these, you know, complex issues related to the pathways of effects. You know, it's not just about feeling full or feeling hungry. It's about how our brains respond to food, how our gut bacteria respond to food, how our fat and liver cells and heart cells respond to food and so forth. I think that second broad theme is going to be understanding new pathways uh, by which food, you know, influences us. I think a third major area, and this is still controversial, but I, I firmly believe this to be true, is that even for obesity, which is one of the great driving issues of our day, I think it's going to be about quality, not quantity. I think that we, we've been focusing for 30 years on trying to reduce obesity by telling people to eat less. And I don't think we need to do that. I think that's the wrong approach. We need to tell people to eat better and, in fact, eat more of healthy foods. If people eat more healthy foods, obesity will go down. And so I think it's about quality, not quantity. And that's going to be a big area of the future. A, a huge area for the future for nutrition science is to understand all of the issues related to processing and additives. How, do, how does the modern agricultural landscape, how we've bred our crops, how we grow them, how we process foods, the things we add to them. Many of those things may be fine. Many of them may not be. And so and uh, I think we really need to understand, um, you know, how food processing and additives, you know, play a role. And then, and then I think finally, as I mentioned earlier, we really need to understand public health and policy and food policy and nutrition policy. What are the levers to create win-win strategies where we have healthier more equitable, more sustainable food that's really just good for the earth, good for us, good for business. Darius Mozafarian alluded to it there, but the way in which we have studied nutrition, trying to boil it down to a single nutrient, is it fat or sugar, has led to polarisation and a form of pretty antagonistic camps. And that's why I talked to Nita Frui, Professor of Population Health and Nutrition at the University of Cambridge about. I wanted to know what's going on and how we can move forward from that. Part of the problem, it seems to me here, is the fact that what we are doing is using unsure evidence, but having to turn that into actual advice. Um, so there's a gap in there in which interpretation can happen. I think everyone acknowledges, both scientists and public health practitioners and policymakers, I think they have a pretty good understanding that there is not perfect evidence on which, for, for certain things, where we can say 100% this is the right thing or 100% this is the wrong thing. But there is enough evidence to not ignore the topic and to not shy away from making recommendations with the caveat that where the evidence is just not solid enough to say, Currently, this is the advice based on the knowledge so far, but we need more research and, you know, we will review this evidence. So it should not be given as final. So, I mean, if I take one example, I, I, I hope it'll be helpful. I'm, I'm just sort of thinking aloud. Um, you know, previously we had the understanding that uh, cholesterol levels in the blood, high cholesterol levels are bad for heart health, right? Everyone... There was good research, reasonable research. People understood it. The messages were ruled out. Then we came to the understanding, well, actually, it's not only the total cholesterol. Really, there is what we now understand broadly as there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And it's really the LDL cholesterol level, the bad one, that we need to reduce. And statins help with that. You know, to what extent does diet help with that it, it, it has been all the rage. Um, and then there is the greater understanding, even more deep understanding, well, it's not just those two. Actually, the ratio between them, the non-HDL cholesterol, the types of lipoproteins, uh, they matter. The size of the LDL particle matters, whether it's small and dense or large and buoyant. So the understanding that increased from total cholesterol to the good and bad concept to actually there's a multitude of different lipids and then the understanding that lots of non-lipid metabolic factors 
matter. And, you know, even the gut microbiome has an effect on heart health, for instance. So the situation is the same when it comes to nutrition. The science evolves with time, and we cannot wait for that, uh, you know, totally cast iron evidence before we give advice. In, in public health and in, in, in lifestyle behaviors research, nutrition is not unique in this way. If you look at, you know, look at seatbelt, uh, you know, the legislation around wearing that, look at uh, climate change. Uh, we could just wait for that perfect evidence on climate change and perhaps we'll all go to hell in a handbasket. Um, and that's kind of combined, I think, with our, our kind of natural laziness as uh, as humans the fact that we want some kind of simple solutions we want to be told what to do it's, there's something about just saying you know what just cut out sugar or reduce your carbon intakes that that's incredibly compelling yeah so i mean i think that that's a really really uh, important point even if you think about why is it that doing uh, what is ordinarily considered the highest form of research, as in the gold standard uh, for, for evidence, uh, you know, randomized controlled trials, preferably that are blinded and placebo-controlled, well, those are far easier to do for a pill, right, for, for, a, for a medicine or a drug, because you can say to people, well, take this or don't take it, or take one that looks just like it, but actually it's a placebo. Well, for diet, that's really hard and i think that is kind of the same problem as 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 you've just uh, posed which is um you know it's so much easier to just cut one thing out or add one thing in rather than thinking about you know nuances and complexities of or you know increase a bit of this and decrease a bit of that so that is you know human nature we increasingly lead very busy lives and we want some simple rules to abide by. Um, and I think the nutrition messaging is getting easier. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to move in that direction. And there are some pretty evidence-based principles that we can now boil down to very much simpler messages. Uh, and, and for me, as a scientist working in the field, those really are around the understanding that we have been through an era when the focus has been on nutrients, but really we must move into what foods are good and bad for us. And when we do our food shopping and our cooking, we abide by that guidance. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I suppose on, on that last point, and to, to sum up a little bit, um, I'm thinking of a, an analogy a little bit like... Um, guidelines for clinical practice where you know there are a range of options and you know it's up to the individual to kind of negotiate with their patient what's the best taking into account a lot of different things um there are a couple of red flags or definitely don't do's or or good evidence for this but but really it, it's it's not being so prescriptive and trying to say you know there is this uh, one I, answer. I think that's that's right but the advice needs to be very clear and not wishy-washy. So it's not that, oh, well, you know, if you eat everything in moderation, everything is fine, because that used to be one philosophy. Now we know that certain things, even in moderation, aren't right, and certain things are actually absolutely fine. So as long as there is evidence-based advice on a number of approaches, then absolutely the individuals should be enabled to make the right choices for them. So for instance, if you have someone who is uh, an immigrant in the UK, let's say from India or uh, you know, from China, their cultural and habitual uh, preferences are going to be very different to someone who has a Sunday roast in the context of the UK or fish on Friday. Mm. You know, they'll be vegans or vegetarians or uh, you know, other types of uh, eating patterns. So, you know, what is appropriate to each person within the broader framework of these foods are actually good for you, you will get all these benefits from them, and then within that you have a choice. And these foods are definite no-nos, you must really minimize them and, and reserve them for, you know, the rare occasion, rare treat. There's also a whole field of you know, real importance to make those choices 
easier from a societal perspective. So when you go along to your supermarket, you know, the products that are uh, promoted, the products that are in easy view, well, they should be the healthier options so that, you know, you, you take away every time having to sort of withhold yourself and, 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 you know, say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be good today. Make the right choice the easier choice. So I think we also need, uh, you know, help from supermarkets and, and, and from food manufacturers. And, and, you know, steps are being taken in that direction. We're not there yet, but we are moving in that direction and we need to do more to make individual choices easier by societal efforts. So research is key. And we need to understand more about the world to be able to give those clear messages that Nita's calling for. But, as you've heard, nutritional science, and particularly nutritional epidemiology, is hard. Matthias Schultz is a professor at the German Institute of Human Nutrition and helped explain some of the complexity in conducting those nutritional studies. A fundamental thing to understand uh, when studying nutrition is something I hadn't really clocked before reading um, a lot of the articles in this series was isocaloric exchange. So could you just explain what that is, what the concept of it is and why it's important? Yeah, if you think about um, like if people eat um, and they don't change their weight, um, you would actually do this under so-called isocaloric um, exchange. That means your total caloric intake would be relatively stable, but choosing some foods uh, or also like if you look at nutrients, uh, specific macronutrients which contain energy would mean you substitute those for others. You make choices uh, for some foods and at the same time choices for against uh, other foods. Um, mm. So uh, so that means that if you are restricting, for example, your carbohydrate intake, you will increase your protein and your fat consumption to level out the, the number of calories that, that you consume. Exactly. That's just necessary. And if you, uh, like, if you reduce your, uh, for example, meat intake, you need to uh, eat other foods instead. There were some other sort of measurement issues that you bring up um, in your paper and you can very carefully list through a lot of them. Things like the sort of semi-quantitative nature of the measurement and the lack of, you know, long-term follow-up. Um, so I was just wondering, could you give us an overview of some of those difficulties with doing observational studies on a kind of whole food um, dietary pattern? But that, that is, of course, a challenge to really investigate um, food intake in, in an observational setting. Usually studies deal with um, assessment tools like questionnaires, food frequency questionnaires. They like present a limited list of foods. You would uh, ask people whether they have been consumed over a specific time frame, um, like a year. So that's a relatively crude measure overall, I would say limited in terms of how detailed you actually can look in, into the diets. Um, and, uh, yeah, the other hand is the, these questionnaires, they are, they are quite good in actually ranking people, whether they consume little or very frequently um, specific foods, but they are not designed really to give quantitative estimates of intake. But if you look at um, at like food intake or food patterns, um, you are frequently like in the position that you need to make decisions about the quantities you're actually evaluating um, because you want to say something like uh, is um, five times a day, like five portions uh, of fruits and vegetables, is this really healthy um, or do we need other portion sizes to promote? Um, and for pattern analysis, it's also more complicated because you need to score um, individual study participants according to various um, different foods which are components of, of these patterns. And this is frequently done also based on quantitative cutoffs. That, that's obviously uh, a mismatch, creating complications. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and all that might lead one to think, well, the, the only way to be able to do this would be to conduct something like a randomized control trial where lots of these factors can be isolated and, and um, 
randomized and, and therefore accounted for. But um, you say you say in the article that there's difficulties in that itself. Yeah, of of course. Um, I mean, diet intervention studies um, and a randomized controlled trial is obviously the gold standard to evaluate this. But um, diet intervention studies on like really manipulating overall diets, they are not like usually not blinded. It's not you cannot really blind people what kind of food they eat, um, nor can you blind the investigators or the study nurses. And um, yeah, you have various other problems of really running long-term studies on chronic diseases. So there, and this is uh, why there are so few randomized controlled di uh, diet trials. The author group, we cannot expect that um, every single question uh, we might have about diet in terms of chronic diseases can be answered by randomized controlled trials. That would be an effort. Uh, I think no one is really um, um, agreeing to to invest. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, on that as well, the the outcomes or the the effect of diet can be very long term, and I doubt anyone would be willing to be on an RCT for, you know, a huge chunk of their life. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. And the Women's Health Initiative is actually actually a very good example for that. They have uh, really focused on. Um, at the start, by conceptualizing the trial on the hypothesis, which was like relevant at the time, uh, which was really on like total fat and total carbohydrates, and what they did see is that this doesn't really relate to the outcomes um, as they expected. Um, and in the discussion of the trial afterwards, after the many years uh, the trial has has been running. Um, yeah, one might speculate whether that was the right hypothesis or whether something like quality of dietary fats or quality of carbohydrates would be actually something more worthwhile to investigate. So, as we heard, RCTs are still the gold standard for testing an intervention. But the way in which trials are set up and conducted really don't mirror real life. So there's this big gap between what happens in the lab and what happens at home. Susan Roberts, director of the Energy Metabolism Laboratory at Tufts University, has been looking at that gap and how individual behaviour, which is deliberately excluded from trials, actually might matter more. So Susan, you are working to try and sort of turn the information that we get um, from good quality studies into something that, that people can actually use that bridges that gap from a sort of experimental to a, a real world situation. Um, so could you first of all describe for us a little bit what happens in um, a sort of experimental situation when, when we're examining um, the effects of food? For that kind of trial, what they would be doing is trying to control everything other than fat and carbohydrate. So the energy density, the palatability of the diet, the variety of the diet, all the other things that might influence weight are kind of clamped down and, and equal between the diets if it's if the study's designed carefully. So so it really, you know, isolates the effect of fat and carbohydrate, but it also creates a very artificial situation. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that randomized trials aren't necessary, they're they're extremely important. We can't do without them. But they do have constraints that I think often limit the effect size of the thing that you're trying to measure. That sort of reductionist view of uh, nutrition, that, that is inevitable from um, carrying out a, a big study, you know, ignores the fact almost that food isn't just fuel. Um, you know, we gain pleasure from it. it it's culturally significant. It's... Uh, you know, it makes us feel better sometimes. There's a lot of other things going on with it. Those single nutrient trials are, are really not a good reflection of real life at all. Uh, and that means that you shouldn't take them out of that context. You know, sometimes they're really appropriate. I mean, for example, we published a randomized trial earlier this year in which we were looking at the metabolic effects of fiber. And we showed that people excrete more energy, they have a higher metabolic rate, we can only really do that kind of work and identify those 
important effects of fiber by doing one of those isolated studies. But that doesn't mean to say that you should then lift those diets right out of the study and start recommending them to people because it was a it was constrained in a number of ways to to do all the controls you need to do. Do you think the same problems um, that that you've identified for for single nutrients apply to larger, um, more sort of diet based trials? Um, not to the same extent. No, these these bundled trials. You know, they, they have something of the same constraints. Um, you know, you know, they're trying to normalize costs and stuff across the menus and things like that often. But they're not but they're not as extreme as the single nutrient or the two nutrient trials. I mean I, I do look on these multi component trials as being as being a very important next step, which very few people have done and actually they're hard to get funded today because you send them through review panels and they say, oh, you can't separate the effects of fat and protein. But, you know, that's because likely they're both having an effect and you put them together and you get a big effect. Um, so I, I don't look on it as being a, a kind of a weaker kind of trial so much as a trial that's closer to real life and, and important for that. Hmm. Um, and on that, I mean, you have mentioned that, you know, the fact that that some people want to ask answer that question or ask that question is it more important to concentrate on fats or or carbohydrates i would love to get away from fat versus carbohydrates at this point i mean you know this it's a really oversimplified version of you know the nutrition uncertainties that we have today to boil that down to whether we should be recommending a high fat or a high carb diet i mean the reality is we shouldn't be probably recommending either and an optimal fat content for health lies somewhere in the middle. So I think that there's many more things that, that are important probably than fat versus carb today. Hmm. I mean, on that, I was going to say, I, for me, it feels like a lot of those questions are our kind of tendency, our wish to, to yeah, find you know, a simple answer to some of these things. You set up a trial, if you're really efficient, it's going to take two years funding. If it's a multi-site trial and it's not very efficient, it's five or sometimes ten years. So the answers come very slowly. But I think we've identified, you know, a number of really important things. You know, dietary variety is important. Fiber is important and there's almost no good trial out there on that. You know, food culture, how willing a population is to kind of eat free food and be disinhibited. There's a ton of things that are emerging as really important from short-term studies, from case control studies, from epidemiological associations. And those things have not yet been kind of bundled effectively together to do the ultimate tests in these kind of bundled trials yet. They need to be done, though, because I'm sure that we haven't, you know, got to the end of optimizing how we help people manage their weight today no no and on that optimization i mean we know that weight management programs are less effective than than individuals want and maybe um uh, at a sort of public health level that we would want as well um yeah yeah the the weight control trials are very effective i mean if you look at most of them i mean in america we have you know the diabetes prevention program is like considered the gold standard because it cost, I don't know, $50 million and it took so many years and multiple fights. The average weight loss in that was just 7%. People regained half of that weight in quite a short time. And then the community versions of DPP are only about half as effective as that. So, you know, the community versions that you can get at a, you know, a weight loss center or a, a gym or something like that are averaging 2 to 4%. And that's not the level of um, help that people want, especially when those programs are, to be honest, very burdensome. Mm, absolutely. So does that imply that, um, you know, within this, diet isn't actually the, the most important thing? Or do you think it's just that we don't have the, the capability to, I don't know, formulate a diet in the best way? Um, well, you know, my personal opinion is that these programs... You know, such as a diabetes prevention program, which asks people to log their food all the time and they ask them to do self compensation stuff. I actually think they're sabotaging weight loss and that there's much better ways to help people lose weight and keep it off and that they're, 
they're not just unhelpful, they are, you know, counterproductive because if you're doing 10,000 steps, you're spending an hour or two a day on exercise when really it's the food that matters when it comes to weight management. Exercise is a, is a bit player. Um, people don't like logging their food. And if that's the core strategy you recommend is counting all your calories, people are going to drop out because it's not very effective and it's a burden. There's completely different ways that, you know, next generation stuff is coming along indicating it's going to be much more effective. And I hope that those old-style horrible techniques are going to be consigned to history before too long. And, and could you tell us a bit more about some of those those new techniques? Um, well, I have to discuss my conflict at that point. I mean, I've been really frustrated with the conventional DPP program. So I actually created a startup, you know, the iDiet.com, to try and get these things out there. But um, ways to monitor your food with without without using um, calorie counters and things like that, ways to develop an internal blueprint. When, when we start people on diets, we actually don't even start with calories. We suggest portion recommendations. We suggest recipes. We suggest no-cook no meals, and we focus on two things. One is not being hungry, and two is going through some exercises to retrain your brain so you actually like the healthy food and that's what you choose first and, and you degrade the neurological circuitry for unhealthy cravings and things. And, you know, it sounds new age, but it's actually working about twice as well as, as a conventional approach. Susan's research shows that in real life, what we ask people to do, how the information is presented to them, external behavioural factors are maybe just as important as the actual composition of someone's diet. And behavioural factors are a key area for future research. Another one of the areas that's become increasingly clear is really important in this is the interaction between our genes and our food. Now, obviously, our environment exerts evolutionary pressure on us. That's how we've come to be the humans that we are today. And a key component of that evolutionary pressure is our food. So obviously our body's reaction to a particular set of nutrients will be, to some extent anyway, genetically defined. Jose Ordovas is director of the Nutrition and Genomics Laboratory, again at Tufts University, and he's been studying to what extent genes, combined with our food, end up determining things like our weight. I've seen this, this commercial kit that you can buy that says we'll test your dna and give you you know nutritional advice to help you lose weight um are we at that level of knowledge and understanding of of the interaction between our, our diet and our genes to be able to do that yet do you think well um we can even go back and say are we at the point that we have enough knowledge to uh, assess the risk of obesity uh, in the individual based on the genes. And what I can tell you is that uh, for the last uh, decade, uh, we have been throwing all the technology that uh, we had in our hands uh, to identify the genetic component of obesity. The same thing can apply to diabetes or to cardiovascular disease. And despite of uh, our ability to really go deep into the genome and um, our ability to collect uh, information on hundreds of thousands of individuals, uh, we are still able to explain a very small percentage of the genetic variability. And by small, I mean less than 10%. If to that you add the complexity of the interaction with the environment, then uh, you can easily gather that we are not to the point that we can tell an individual, okay, uh, give us uh, your DNA and we'll analyze your DNA and we'll tell you what you have to eat in order to lose weight. What do we know about about sort of patterns of genetic response to to food, to our diet? Um, you know, does it sort of work on on sort of subpopulation levels, is there sort of you know broad um, agreements within within groups, or or is it an incredibly individualistic um, response that will, uh, you know, vary wildly within a within a particular subpopulation? 
Well, I, I think both are true. Uh, but let's go to populations. Let's, let's go to groups, right? And uh, the, the genome that we have nowadays uh, in different parts of the, or the genomes that we have in different parts of the world are the results of an interaction between precisely the genes and the environment, right? And by environment, we can say, okay, what food is available in each uh, part of the world? So that has created uh, the, or has fostered uh, the presence of certain uh, genetic variants that are better suited to uh, a specific uh, dietary environments. The same is true for altitude, the same is true for exposure to sun. So uh, there is what we call positive selection. Could you give us a couple of examples of that? Well, uh, for example, uh, the Eskimos, right? The Eskimos, uh, they have a diet that is obviously very different than the one that we have, or at least traditionally they had a diet very different to the one that uh, we have, and they have specific variants at certain genes that make them deal differently, for example, with polyunsaturated fatty acids, right? So, and another example, which is very well-known and is a classical one, is the lactase persistence, by which humans can continue consuming milk during their entire lives. So there is a positive selection, there is an advantage uh, to the fact that uh, some people could consume milk during their entire lives that made that genetic variant to uh, spread through certain parts of the world in which milk was available. Mm. So um, that kind of begs the question that if populations grow up and you know their their genes adapt to their environment, which includes the food that they have available to them there. Um, what does that mean for something like, you know, we talk about the Mediterranean diet as being one that's that's meant to be particularly healthy, particularly heart healthy, or perhaps a Japanese diet. Yeah. But, you know, if there is a population that has a genetic, um, a sort of genetically honed for that diet, and that's the population that you're looking at, Tim, if you took that Mediterranean diet and put suddenly everyone in China on it, for example, do we know that that would actually benefit them in the way that it did the uh, the Mediterranean population? Well, th that's the kind of experiment that has not been carried out at the scale that it will be necessary to answer that question. Uh, however, based on the evidence that we have, uh, most probably uh, the people in China will benefit from the traditional Chinese diet in the same way that the people in the Mediterranean countries benefit from the from the uh, traditional Mediterranean diet. Even going, because you put the example of uh, China, or similarly uh, we can extrapolate to Japan, um, then uh, and going beyond the, the genome and going into the something that is very popular nowadays, which is the microbiome, uh, the microbiome has also uh, gone through that adaptation, right? And uh, people in different places of the world have different microbiome that is in part uh, due to the environment, but also there is an interaction between the genome of the individual and the, uh, gene, uh, the, the genomes of the, of the microbiome. So, uh, there are some very popular uh, nutritional supplements, or, yeah, supplements that um, are being used in Asia, and the benefit comes from the metabolism of these supplements or these ingredients in the in the gut. Uh, if if somebody in the UK or somebody in here in the U.S., uh, consume those supplements. Probably they don't. They would not have the same effect because they don't have the the right microbiota to take advantage of them. Everyone that I've talked to in this podcast is an author of an article in that upcoming series, and will be talking at that upcoming conference. 
This is just a snapshot of what we'll be covering, aimed at piquing your interest in the rest of the podcast series. We'll also be finding out more about food quality, how much agency individuals actually have in managing their diet, how we can turn population levels into personal action, and what some of the negative consequences of focusing so much on our diet might be. Those articles will be coming up next week, and those podcast episodes will be out over the next couple of months. So subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and I'm going to finish this podcast where we started, with Nita Furui. Um, I mean, there's so much one could say, as, as you said right at the start. Uh, it, it, it's knowing what will kind of get people's imagination. I mean, one of my great passions, I would say, is to really take away this myth that uh, nutrition science is not up to the task because what people tend to do when they criticize this is as if this is a standalone field where the science is soft science. It is not at all the case. You know, can the same people come forward and tell me of the current public health policies, be it smoking, be it alcohol, be it seatbelt use, be it, you know, any n- number of um you know, road safety, all of these. Where is the RCT evidence and where is this, uh, you know, the sort of rigor that seems to be demanded of nutritional science, where is it for other fields in public health? So I think nutritional science, of course, we should do better. But I think, especially if we put together the sort of thing that I was talking about earlier of Let's combine the evidence from where RCT trial evidence exists, use that, supplement it with really well-conducted long-term prospective studies and with randomized trials of intermediate factors such as you know, weight and uh, obesity and uh, lipid levels and so on. So I think with that, we, we can get to pretty close to the truth.